From Islamic Finance News, the world's leading Islamic finance news provider, this is IFN Podcast. With escalating geopolitical tension weighing on the global economy, the banking and finance system is under immense pressure. My name is Winita Tan, the Managing Editor of IFN, and today I speak to Moody's Investor Services' Alexander Pergesi, the Vice President and Senior Credit Rating Officer for Sovereign Risk, Ashraf Madani, the Vice President and Senior Credit Officer of EMEA Banking, as well as Mohamed Ali Londe, Vice President and Senior Credit Officer for EMEA Insurance, to understand the implications on the Islamic finance industry. Hi, Ashraf, Mohammed, and Alex. Thank you so much for joining us today. So, Ashraf, I would like to start with you first. Perhaps you can begin by giving us an outlook of the Islamic finance industry, but from a more forward-looking perspective, specifically, what three Islamic finance trends should we anticipate this year or, you know, over the next 12 to 18 months? Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Benita, uh, for having me on this post podcast and uh, a quick hello to to your uh, uh, listeners. With regards to your question, uh, as you know, we published our Islamic Finance Outlook just recently and and we tend to have a a positive tone uh, on our outlook for the Islamic uh, finance industry as as a whole. Now, specifically on the trends that uh, you asked about, if I basically to anticipate uh, key trends for, for this year and for the next 12 to 18 months, perhaps I would start with the, the expected outperformance of the key Islamic finance markets uh, that we follow in Southeast Asia and uh, GCC. As we know, the world economy is going through a rough time uh, at this stage with a lot of talk on the possibility of recession in, in the Europe and in the U.S., uh, we also see some confidence crisis in some banks affecting the wider, basically, uh, markets. But when it comes to the, the key Islamic markets that we cover, uh, then we tend to see more resilient performance of these uh, economies. And, and they are being looked at as, as the bright spot in these uh, turbulent uh, times. Now, just moving on to the second uh, trend uh, that we observe is basically despite the higher uh, uh, interest rates globally, uh, we started to see some issuers, specifically in the finance, financial institutions space, uh, uh, getting used to the idea of higher rates and started coming back to the market. Issuers who have deferred accessing, accessing the market in, in 2022 are now coming back to the market and trying to capitalize uh, on the recent dip we saw on long-term rates. Now, uh, last but not least, we still expect the, the, the penetration of Islamic finance uh, to continue to grow, uh, including in the largest two markets, uh, Saudi Arabia and Malaysia, as we know. Uh, despite the high penetration, uh, we still expect the demand on, on, on Sharia-compliant products uh, to lead to higher growth in Islamic finance uh, compared to conventional uh, uh, peer. We also continue to see uh, more conventional banks uh, to choosing to convert to, to Sharia-compliant banks uh, to ensure that they capture the good story of growth in the Islamic finance industry. 
that's roughly speaking the, the key trends that we see in, in, in the industry, Benita. Uh, so you are painting a, a rather positive outlook for, for the industry, which is good. So Alex, if I can turn to you, um, last year, we actually saw long-term sovereign circle decline for the second consecutive year to $80 billion from $103 billion the year before, it, which is a, a very sizable uh, drop. Can we expect this downward trajectory to continue? And I mean, is this something that we should be worried about? Yeah, thanks, Finita. Um, our expectation is that sovereign Sukuk issuance volumes actually stabilize. They're on $80-85 billion this year and next. So we do not expect uh, any further uh, declines from the 2022 level. Uh, issuance from GCC, especially Saudi, Saudi Arabia, will likely go down further, but that will be more or less offset by higher issuance volumes from Indonesia, Malaysia, as well as uh, Turkey. I would certainly not be worried in the, in the way you might be worried if you were looking at a steady decline in corporate or bank Sukuk issuances. Uh, declining sovereign issuance volumes, especially for uh, the higher rated issuers like Saudi Arabia or Malaysia, uh, do not typically reflect uh, market issuance, issue, liquidity issues or deteriorating global economic prospects. Instead, they are driven by government net financing needs, i.e. the size of the government's fiscal deficits, and the volume of sukuk that are uh, coming due in any given year and need to be refinanced. In in this specific case, uh, 2023, oil prices have declined since the highs of 2022, but remain high enough for most GCC sovereign, especially Saudi Arabia, to run uh, fiscal surpluses or to continue to run fiscal surpluses. So this effectively eliminates the need for uh, net sukuk issuances. Meanwhile, and, and this is also something quite specific to Saudi Arabia, which has been uh, uh, the largest sovereign Sukuk issuer in the past few years, uh, the need to issue Sukuk to repay maturing Sukuk will also be less uh, in uh, 2023 because the government in Saudi Arabia has pre-funded a lot of the uh, 2023 maturities in 2022 in anticipation of rising interest rates. So we expect Sukuk issuance volumes from Saudi Arabia to decline this year, Uh, compared to 2022, but as I said, this will be largely offset by higher issuances from Indonesia in particular, where uh, Sukuk issuance dropped quite sharply in 2022, and so we expect it to recover back uh, towards around the uh, 2021 level, and we also expect an increase in Sukuk issuance out of Turkey uh, on the back of uh, a large widening in fiscal deficits there ahead of early elections later this year, and also the need to fund uh, relief and reconstruction efforts following the uh, recent earthquakes. It's interesting you brought up Turkey, because this year we also saw, or we finally welcome Egypt's long-awaited Sukup, right? So do you think we can anticipate more issuances from, from new issuers? Yes, I mean, e- Egypt's Sukuk issue has been uh, on the cards for nearly a decade, but it wasn't until February this year that the government uh, finally launched its uh, its trust certificate program and issued its first one and a half billion sukuk out of it. Um, Egypt has a large Muslim majority population that has a growing Islamic banking sector, although from a relatively low base compared to some of the other uh, countries in the region. And government has uh, fairly large uh, net annual financing needs, uh, roughly about 30 billion on average over the last uh, uh, three years. So Egypt has the potential to become a major uh, sovereign sukuk issuer. But this will likely take time and, uh, and, and go hand in hand with the growth 
of uh, domestic Islamic uh, banking assets. Okay, I'd like now to like shift gears a little bit and look at the Islamic insurance sector. Now, Mohammed, we are definitely seeing a lot of consolidation within the takaful industry, that it be in Saudi or in the UAE. Um, can you help us understand how is this shaping the sector in the GCC? Well, what's, what we're seeing in the GCC market for insurance and including for Islamic insurance, the couple of players, is that there significant profitability challenges have risen. So there's rising claims clause, whether that's pertaining to inflation related or just post-pandemic related normal, normalization of claims activity. So there's rising claims costs. Regulatory compliance costs have increased and such, and so have operational costs such that there's significant pressure now on profitability and capital adequacy as a result. As a result of this, what we're seeing is that there is consolidation happening, occurring, where these pressures are heightened or alternatively there is intent from those issuers grow their operational scale despite the highly competitive price competition that we see in the market. And so what we're seeing as a result of this consolidation is that in in the immediate effect, yes, the merged entities do improve their capital, but they're still continuing to face challenges around their profitability and challenges in improving their profitability on a sustained basis. And for us, from a credit perspective, M&A, which leads to sustained capital enhancements, whether that's through profitable growth or profitable diversification or through expense efficiencies. That is what would drive a credit positive view from us. And currently what we're seeing is not all M&A have resulted in such outcomes. So if, if we look at our rated portfolio, out of our rated portfolio, there are four entities that are involved in some sort of M&A. There's only one of those entities that's actually where the impact of that has been positive to the effect that we've had, we have a positive outlook on them. Uh, on the remaining ones, yes, we do see that there is positive synergies to come. Uh, however, given the challenges, as I mentioned, about the rising claims costs, rising compliance costs, regulatory, rising still significant pricing competition, improving profitability post these mergers or consolidation is still a challenge. And so... For us, it's, it's, it's still something that we're keenly watching, but we know that continued consolidation will, uh, will, will remain a feature of this market. Right. So I think one trend um, that we are also seeing, well, not really a trend, but an observation from market players this year is that the industry seems to be fairly excited about COP28 being held in the UAE this year, especially after you know successful yeah. one by Egypt last year. Um, Ashraf, if I turn to you, like in your opinion, do you think we can expect any Islamic initiatives out of COP28 or, or you know, anything, any outcome from COP28 that the industry will benefit in any way? Yeah, uh, great, great question. Uh, uh, to be honest, the, the fact that COP28 is being held in, in, in the UAE is a great advantage for the, the Islamic finance industry and, and they need to capitalize uh, on, on that. As we know, a majority of investors have, have already incorporated ESG in the investment criteria. And we also know there is some natural crossover uh, between Islamic finance and, and ESG, uh, uh, particularly on, on the, the S side. It has always been uh, uh, the case. I think 
more work is needed on on the e side and and, and we have seen things developing on on, on this uh, space for example since the first green uh, support issuance by, by a Malaysian corporate in, in 2017-18, if, if I remember correctly, we saw Indonesia uh, after that becoming the first sovereign to, to uh, green support. A few years uh, after that, uh, we saw green support issued in, in NGCC and, and Africa. If we look at UAE specifically, we you just have to look at basically the transformation in the economy over the years away uh, from hydrocarbon and, and which led to, to other countries following uh, similar trends and, and follow the footsteps of the UAE in that uh, space. I think the Islamic finance industry uh, should capitalize on, on COP28 being held in the UAE and try to promote Islamic finance solution, specifically on the ESG compliance sukuk. As, as an alternative asset class and as also as a funding source for, for issuers. And now issuance volumes, if you look at the uh, ESG compliance sukuk, uh, have been increasing year over year, but they still constitute a small percentage of the overall uh, uh, market. So hopefully we see uh, Islamic uh, participants take advantage of this and try to promote uh, ESG compliance sukuk uh, uh, during these times. Uh, on that note of you know COP28 and climate and ESG, the GCC is definitely very vocal in their pledge to become net zero, um, Mohammed, which leaves Takaful insurers in a predicament, right? As they are heavily exposed to these carbon transition risk. Um, so how will the push towards you know decarbonization impact Takaful operators? And really, what should operators do to mitigate such risk? You're, you're absolutely right, Vinita. Uh, the the couple insurers are heavily exposed uh, to carbon transition risk, and this is mainly through their dependence on these economies that are heavily reliant on hydrocarbons. Although, you know, they are, you know, further, it's it, it, this exposure is exacerbated by their exposure to the investments in these economies as well, because they tend to be concentrated even in their investment portfolios to these economies. But having said that, carbon transition brings does bring some short-term opportunities for these, the CAFL or the wider insurance players. So let me first explain in terms of the risks. So the carbon, the main carbon transition risk is basically because of the disruption that would happen to these Takaful insurers' revenue streams. Should there be any disruption to those econo- economies that are uh, as 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 they're you know linked to the hydrocarbon and the demand for hydrocarbon shifts without these economies being able to decarbonize, that would severely impact these insurers' ability for premiums because they are linked to these economies, whereas at the same time, there is possibility that some of the sector's hydrocarbon-related investment assets may become stranded or lose value because of the decline in demand for hydrocarbon and related products. This is on the more medium to long term. However, what we see is that in the short term, these same insurers are actually set to benefit from the opportunities that come as these governments start to diversify their economies. For example, we're seeing the travel and tourism sector really pick up, infrastructure expenditure really pick up. And most of the insurers in the region, including the Kaful players, are having to beef up uh, and are set to take advantage of those growth opportunities. So in the short term, there are opportunities for these players from carbon transition. In the medium to long term, 
yes, they're highly linked to these economies and thus share the fate of those risks. Speaking about risk, so obviously the world is, you know, going through some really difficult times mm-hmm. now, you know, with Russia and Ukraine. And, you know, just now you mentioned the impact of like rising interest rates and, um, and inflation, cost of living crisis, all of that. So what is your market outlook for the Islamic insurance sector amid all of these volatilities? Now, as, as, as we've been hearing from Ashraf and Alex as well, so there is economic growth. And that economic growth for the Islamic insurance sector is very positive. That, that's go- what's going to underpin the continued growth of the Islamic insurance sector. Uh, furthermore, there is widening of compulsory covers, such as motor and medical. Uh, and that, along with the partial price hardening, we've seen partial price hardening as a result from the increase, the, the responsive action from the insurers in terms of claims inflation. So there is some price hardening from that. Some of the price hardening that we've seen is from driven from the reinsurers globally having hardened their prices. So that's trickling down. But it's more of a reactive and it's very partial. So overall, we are seeing growth in the Islamic insurance sector. However, on the Swiss side, the profitability, the profitability challenges remain. And that's because the claims inflation is still there. Uh, the impact of the volatile financial markets, as you rightly mentioned, is still there, and that's impacting the investment performance. The price competition is still there, and 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 with the companies digitalization, di- digitalizing, uh, that is driving them to have additional operational costs and looking to spread those costs or wider premium base. That's causing further price competition. So overall, despite there being growth opportunities. Because of the increased costs, we expect to continue to see consolidation in the market. But as mentioned before, consolidation is from the get-go. Overall, for the market, is positive. But for the individual players, it depends on the synergies that are there to be had uh, and the efficiencies. Um, Ashraf, you, earlier you gave a pretty bullish outlook about the industry. Um, you know, So in terms of like challenges or risk that we should keep an eye out, uh, the industry should keep an eye out for this year. Um, what do you think they are and how should we you know, prepare for it? Uh, I think to be honest with you, it's something that we, we spoke about in, in this call many times. Just that the global headwind in terms of uh, uncertainty about growth and inflation, I think these are the key challenges for, for the industry, although they're not really specific to Islamic uh, uh, finance. Uh, having said that, I still expect the industry to be more resilient uh, 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 to these headwinds, but still, nonetheless, will be, be impacted and, and, and considered a challenge to the wider industry as well. And Alex, um, perhaps I can get your final thoughts on the sovereign secret sector, specifically, uh, I know you talk about Outlook, but I'm also interested and curious to know, like, in your opinion, like, what do you think are the most exciting markets for sovereign secret and why? Indonesia, Malaysia, Saudi Arabia, and Turkey will remain the largest sovereign Sukuk issuers in the years to come. That's really given by the size of their economies and the active government support for uh, development of the Islamic finance industry. That said, over the next couple of years, the balance is likely to shift closer to uh, Southeast Asia, where most uh, uh, sovereign issuers used to be. Uh, coming from back uh, uh, before 2017, before Saudi Arabia entered uh, the market. Now, in terms of the uh, currency and jurisdiction, the bulk of the sovereign issuance will remain domestic and in local currency, roughly about 80 percent 
that we saw in uh, in 2022 as well as the previous uh, few years. What I think will be interesting to see is to what extent the foreign participation in the domestic sukuk market will increase, particularly in Saudi Arabia, that has taken a number of steps over the past couple of years to uh, facilitate foreign investors' access to domestic sukuk, uh, the least of which would be uh, by linking uh, Euroclear and Saudi Arabia's own domestic securities depository center, which will uh, now allow foreign investors to access real-denominated sukuk directly. Uh, also, uh, that is going to move Saudi Arabia one step closer uh, uh, for its domestic sukuk to be included in uh, a major global fixed income indices. So I think this is uh, perhaps something that I would be looking out for over the next year or, or two. Thank you for listening. For more discussions on the Islamic finance industry, log on to www.islamicfinancenews.com. You can also listen to IFN Podcast on your favorite platforms, including iTunes and Spotify.